And then he's like doing it with the land iguanas too. And his, I love it because he's like, um, and it was greatly astonished and soon shuffled up to see what was the matter and then stared me in the face as much to say, what made you pull my tail? <laughs> well, yeah, Chuck, what the f***? <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of Discovering Darwin, the podcast dedicated to the writings and musings of Charles Darwin. I'm your host, James Wagner, and I'm joined by my two esteemed colleagues, Dr. Josh Atkins. Hi, Josh. Hello, James. And Dr. Sarah Bray. Hey, James. Hey, hey. Josh. Hi, Sarah. We're all saying hi to each other. That's great. <laughs> it's been a while as we're sort of life is getting in our way, but we're happy to come back. Uh, today's episode is dedicated to the Galapagos Islands, and we're going to sort of talk about how Darwin saw these islands, how he first encountered them, what he thought of them, and then how they... Um, influenced the way he thought about evolution. And we're going to try to dispel some of the classic myths about how he had a eureka moment while on the islands about evolution. So uh, before we get started, anybody want to talk to me about what are the Galapagos Islands? Anybody? Archipelago. <laughs> Archipelago, yes. There are chain islands, right? Where, yeah. are we, where are we located here now? In the Pacific Ocean to the about uh, a thousand kilometers west of the South American mainland. And they're just, they straddle the equator, right? Where the right. majority of the islands are below the equator. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a point in his voyage here when they're going around the different equa uh, different islands of the Galapagos that they go around uh, that big island. What is it called? Uh, Isla Isabella? Yeah. Isabella. Isabella. <laughs> and when they go over the northern part of Isabella, it's the first time they were in the northern hemisphere for three and a half years. Wow. You know, think about that, right? So they've been all yeah. down the... If you've been listening to this season, you know you've been <laughs> stuck in the southern hemisphere. And it probably has felt like three and a half years. <laughs> but they went one degree north. Yes, they did. Yeah, like <laughs> and then they came even back. Even that, right. But eventually they, they did head their way slowly to Tahiti and then Australia and then home. So, but, so back to the southern hemisphere. Yeah, true. <laughs> so, uh, so, right. Chain of Islands... Um, volcanic islands, mm -hmm. right? Kind of analogous to Hawaii, like a hot spot that the plate is moving over. So you have a chain of islands that are youngest in the west and oldest in the east. Oh, really? Because mm -hmm. that's... Uh, that's how it is in... Oh, it's, it's the opposite in Hawaii. Sorry. Yes, it is yeah. the opposite mm -hmm. in Hawaii. That's what yeah. I was thinking. So uh, say that again, the youngest... The youngest are in the west and oh. the oldest are in the east. Interesting. Yeah. And when you've been there... Mm-hmm. When you say old, and I know when I've been in Hawaii, old to young, you can definitely see the topography changes oh, yeah, because of erosion sure. mm -hmm. and the vegetation changes. Is that the right. same for the yeah. Galapagos? And for me, I was mostly in the eastern islands, so I didn't see some of the youngest. But we did go to a few islands that had, we, we did go to one island that had had a lava flow in the late 1800s, even though it was in the eastern group of islands. Mm. Um, and so that one was kind of the one that we went to just so that we could experience the, you know, uncolonized lava and see all the different really cool um, little fumaroles and all those little things. And, and oh, we went we also went to one island where we got to walk in a lava tube, which was cool. Oh, I'm sure nice. you've done that mm -hmm. before. Um, I was also I am notorious. I am known for uh, James and I have been on trips before where we, we, t we take students to the tropics and we um, snorkel and I uh, get 
um, some of you may experience this before. I get dock rock where I'm fine on the boat, but after a week on the boat, I um, feel like I'm still on the boat when I'm on land. <laughs> and I can remember creaming down that lava tube because I could not just, I couldn't walk straight. That balance all. was a, a it miss. Was, it was a problem. I was holding on to my husband, like, don't let me. <laughs> so uh, we got a sort of a, a geographical orientation. So to give you a sense of time, when Darwin arrived at the Galapagos Islands, it was in September of 1835, remembering he was only 26 years old at the time uh, when he arrived on this, uh, on this part of his voyage. What we are reading and talking about is the voyage of the, the Beagle, and we've talked about this early in the season. You may recall that this book itself uh, was published in 1845, so about 10 years later. And so he, when it got uh, rewritten and published by the Murray House, he did add some of his ideas about evolution mm -hmm. in that point. But it's still 1845. It's still 15, 14 years before he publishes The Origin. Mm -hmm. So what, what we'll talk about in this podcast is some of the, the little germs of ideas where Darwin is sort of setting the seeds of evolution into his writings. And, and you know, to what extent he actually accepted that idea or was he still working it out in, in prose? I'm not sure. But he's definitely... We'll talk about it later. He's definitely showing us that he sees the species are not fixed. All right. One of the, one of the things I was doing research for this podcast, and I was sad to learn, is that um, you know, we've talked about his field notebooks that are um, been ar digitally archived, and I bought a book that sort of has transcribed them. And I learned that the Galapagos notebook is missing. Oh. The original is missing. Wow. And luckily, they microfilmed it in 19... 1969. Wow. So we ha they had that to transcribe, but the original one is just somehow missing. Nice. <laughs> uh, Sarah's computer in her office now has a great picture of her standing next to a ginormous Galapagos tortoise. She's not writing it though, so I'm not so impressed. I'm they wouldn't let me. I'm a little I'm, disappointed. I know. The, the guide was like, if anybody tries to touch the tortoise, we're not going to play anymore. <laughs> So one of the things that struck me, I don't know about you guys, when you read the writing of the Galapagos, the he pretty much describes it as a pretty horrible place, right? It's hot, it's 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 barren, it's difficult, mm -hmm. it's uh, not pretty. I think he even gives it sort of a hellish kind of connotation. He yeah. describes some of the creatures as imps, right? <laughs> and everything's brown, like and the dull. vegetation's brown. And I think that's weird because I I, I have I can remember what I thought the Galapagos Islands looked like when I was a kid mm -hmm. and reading nature books about the, the tortoises and seeing photos. And that image that I had in my head is nothing at all like the image that Darwin conjures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He conjures this very um, uh, almost ancient landscape that, that you might expect to see dinosaurs wandering around. And um, he even makes the mention that uh, – the, these creatures, these tortoises, are something out of some antediluvian world mm -hmm. and, and uh, describes the landscape as cyclopean, which is uh, a good H.P. Lovecraft mm -hmm. word. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it even refers to some of the animals as stupid or – it's odd to me. The language in this chapter struck me as being much more uh, critical. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's critical is the word, mm -hmm. but it was not the positive – uh, Less objective, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe that's the way to look at it. Well, it seems like he was having so much fun hiking in the Andes. And, <laughs> like, and now we're in this desolate place. Yeah, well, even like the 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 length of each entry in mm -hmm. this chapter, like yeah. for each date, is, is mm -hmm. somewhat abbreviated compared to the last couple of chapters mm -hmm. that we went through. 
Um, and I wonder if that's just a symptom of his in, uh, impression of the Galapagos, mm-hmm. at least at first. It's so weird, too, though, because in like in the chapter, then he kind of recounts how many things he's collected. And he collected a ton of stuff, right? <laughs> Were you going to use the official buttload? Yeah, I was like, oh, what do we have the M rating on this? I can't remember. <laughs> um, and, you know, so like he kind of talks about it being desolate and yet he collects so much stuff. It's mm-hmm. just kind of interesting. Yeah. And maybe he's just so busy collecting and looking at stuff that he doesn't have time to <laughs> jot, jot it down. It. He's not doing his daily bullet journal. Yeah. <laughs> ah, yes. Yeah. So he, um, Josh, did you have a quote for us to sort of describe his experience on the island? Well, I, I have a quote that sort of gives an overall impression of the mm-hmm. importance of it. Do you yeah. mind reading it? Uh, sure. So he says, um, and I don't have a page number here, which is unfortunate because I'm looking at the... Uh, online mm-hmm. version. That's fine. They're but, all different anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The The natural history of these islands is eminently curious and well deserves attention. Most of the organic productions are aboriginal creations found nowhere else. There is even a difference between the inhabitants of the different islands, yet all show a marked relationship with those of America, though separated from that continent by an open space of ocean between five and six hundred miles in width. The archipelago is a little world within itself, or rather a satellite attached to America, whence it has derived a few stray colonists and has received the general character of its indigenous productions. Nice. Yes. Wait, can you continue, though? I'd like you to finish that, because it's interesting, where he says, considering the small size of these islands. not in our version. Oh. (laughs) It's not in your eyes? Okay. Oh, okay. Well, I'll do. So, yeah, you go. I've forgotten what I said. <laughs> <laughs> it was so long ago. <laughs> well, it, it's that mysteries of mysteries. Oh, right. He says, uh, considering the small size of these islands, we feel the more astonished at the number of their aboriginal beings and at their confined range. Hence, both in space and time, we seem to be brought somewhat near to that great fact, that mystery of mysteries. The first appearance of new beings on this earth. It is a cosmic linchpin. The Galapagos are the the pin, as it were, <laughs> that sort of uh, holds his uh, thoughts together at this point. Yeah. So he's he definitely sees it, like you said, Josh, as a very uh, primitive land that um, is uh, barren of many of the rich vegetation that he saw, of course, mm-hmm. as he was traveling through South America. The diversity of plants and animals to him was interesting and uh, had a unique pattern which we'll talk about as we talk about each of the specific groups so a chain of islands that he uh moved around and my understanding too and sarah you can correct me of this is that the islands themselves even though they're in the middle of the ocean they're kind of um in a difficult and isolated part of the ocean because like the humboldt court mm-hmm. current comes up that coast of mm-hmm. south america so you don't get a lot of movement if you're trying to swim from yeah, South it's not America push you that direction. Right, all, you're going to go no. up to Mexico right, or something, exactly. right? So you get this sort of barrier of mm-hmm. movement across from the water, mm-hmm. from land to the islands, and then the wind patterns are kind of odd there, right? Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of isolation or or uh, doldrums, I guess. Mm-hmm. So that it's really becomes a very isolated place. That when colonization occurs, it's probably a very rare event. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I guess even sailing between the islands is it challenging? Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty rough place it's pretty choppy out there um we snorkeled some and there were several times where i got out just because it was so 
rough. In fact, there was one place we went that they they dropped us off, and then the pangas, the little little rafts, mm-hmm. buzzed around so that they would just pick us as we were just getting shoved down there oh, to the other end because so, like, of the currents yeah exactly so they just like we went through three times they dropped us off at one end and they zoomed down the other and pick us up as we're like <laughs> flailing down <laughs> and hopefully we don't miss you because exactly. otherwise next stop tahiti yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but guess what there's coconut palms there so yeah and so there's really st- and the other thing too is it's very deep ocean mm-hmm. right so they're very cold yeah so it's it, it's a very isolated uh part of the world um and i guess very primitive is there anything else we want to talk about? Just the geology and or the landscape. It's it, it's volcanic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's reminiscent of Cape Verde, the uh, islands that he first stopped on the beginning of his journey. And he'll come. We'll come back and talk about how he compares those two. So it's a volcanic chain of islands um, that have a unique set of flora and fauna associated with them. Well, and I think it's important uh, m- maybe to point out that those swift, cold, deep waters help modulate the climate of, mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. islands and so you expect this to just be a steamy tropics and it really no. isn't yeah no the humidity is not there for sure it's not that hot either um it, because but, the water is so cold around it and i think yeah josh i'm glad you brought that up because it is um really arid because the water is cool enough that you're not getting a lot of evaporation mm-hmm. that would normally be doing it and so you really only get um, it's very um, elevationally graduated in terms of the kinds of vegetation and how much water you get and whether you're on the windward or leeward side. Um, and so that really arranges it. So when you think about the islands, the kind of area down by the sea is really, really arid. arid and then you have to get up higher to get into anywhere. And, and then he talks get- about it a little bit that that's why the tortoises are constantly on the move right up high to get because you go up high yeah you, you get the condensation the right. cloud mm-hmm. action but he did mention that along because you've got this black lava and you still have a you're on the equator the shoreline can get intensely hot mm-hmm. walking he talks about walking on the shore in his boots and his feet still getting burned because mm-hmm. the, yeah. the ground is that hot and taking the temperature of the sand and and it exceeded his thermometer's yeah. capacity <laughs> right, right. Like it's it's just so doggone hot yeah so it's a, it is, so we just contradicted ourselves, but let's see if we can context it. So yes, for the, the, the air temperature may not be yeah. that bad. The ground temperature, if you're walking on the ground, especially this exposed lava, mm-hmm. it can be very yeah. brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And the animals take advantage of it, especially the marine iguanas, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about later. They use that to sort of re, uh, reheat themselves after being in the ocean. All right. So a chain of islands, he visits uh, a number of them. The other thing we didn't talk about. Um, is that these islands were already inhabited by people, right? Mm-hmm. So whalers had been using these islands probably for... Since all, the 1600s. Yeah, yeah, so a couple hundred and something mm-hmm. years. Um, they weren't greatly populated. There were some people who had been put there as prisoners. Yeah, there's a penal colony right. on um, uh, San Cristobal. And there was some uh, just regular, like, you know, Mr. Lawson. I don't remember what his job was, but he that's who uh, Darwin stayed with. Was he a governor or something? He was some sort of... That's the man who talked about the tortoises. But he was staying with uh, a gentleman who had a house, and there was a post office, right? There's a post office on a beach. Well, <laughs> there's a barrel. A barrel. <laughs> a barrel. That, this is what it is. It, it's a barrel, and like 
So there's a barrel on the island of Espanola, and whalers, when they would come, would just drop off letters there, and whoever came along and was, like, going to head towards home picked up the barrel and replaced it with another barrel. Um, And so it might be, like, five years before, like, these people (laughs) up here potentially get back. So it was just a place everybody knew that they could leave. And and they still do it now for the tourists, and there's still a little thing there. And you you, uh, drop off your postcard, and then you pick up somebody else's, and you send it to them and tell them, you know, where you're from and where you got it and mm-hmm. they kind of see how long it takes to get back to you. And, and as you said, the whalers were there and, and um, the, author, the author of mm-hmm. Moby Dick. What's it, what's Melville. It? Melville. Yeah, Melville. Melville visited the Galapagos in his research as for whaling and was also not impressed. <laughs> <laughs> so it is one of those islands, I think, you know, if you're a traveler and not a biologist, it's yeah. probably a barren looks like it's not even it's like a half-baked rock in the middle of the ocean but as a biologist you start looking closely yeah you can see a lot of interesting things it's not that it's like super diverse it's just that you start seeing these interesting things Mm -hmm. right patterns of exactly diversity but you also darwin noticed back then even that there was already introduced species that were not uh, native to the island Mm -hmm. right sarah and yeah and that's still a problem to this day yeah very much so cats goats pigs rats um, rats exactly all of these things are really big conservation issues um so yeah you know the goats and the pigs are really a problem in terms of they're eating the food that would normally be eaten by the tortoises all the apuntia no um, but, but so apuntia is a cactus right? right but there was a native cactus there right because he talks apuntias about the- are native okay yeah they're highly diversified there Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So when you said, oh, okay, I misunderstood because I know Apuntia. No, they're eating what they're eating. What that's what the tortoises would normally oh, gotcha. eat is the Apuntia, and, and but they're being outcompeted by the goats and all the invasive things eating it. Oh, right. So I less th- food for them. Yeah. I think Charles Island is one of the, those islands that was somewhat more densely populated when Darwin arrived, mm-hmm. and he made note. Uh, this is on the twenty third of September, I think, that there was an abundance of of goats here wild pigs and goats um but even so the staple food um source is uh the tortoise for the the people here and so it made me wonder uh, he makes a note that the tortoise population has been greatly reduced Mm -hmm. even at that point Mm -hmm. um and he kind of lays the blame on people eating all the tortoises but i also kind of wonder if you've got goats and hogs running wild all over the place on the island you know what effect is that having right. on yeah. on your local biodiversity or your your uh, tortoise numbers mm-hmm. specifically yeah you know what let's take a break and when we come back let's let's explore the tortoises further and talk about why they were so important to darwin and what what makes them so unique you're listening to discovering darwin You're listening to Discovering Darwin. Today, we're talking about Darwin's adventures in the Galapagos, and we're going to discuss now his uh, interactions with tortoises and thoughts on tortoises on the island. And these tortoises are large, are they not? They'd be big. Quite big. Okay, let's archipelago. 
in this chapter, Darwin sort of mentions the uh, first the order in which he visits islands, and then he treads backward mm-hmm. and starts talking about various groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he mentions a few facts about tortoises as we go through, mm-hmm. um, and I like I like to envision Darwin first seeing one of these giant tortoises that can weigh hundreds of pounds, right? Six, 800 pounds, the yeah. really big ones. Yeah, he said it would take eight men to carry one, right? Up yeah. to eight, eight men. Men. To That's circle heavy. around this tortoise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making a gender joke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, men. Oh, right. But it would only take five women. There you go. Because <laughs> they'd be smart enough to put it on a wheelbarrow. Exactly. Like, <laughs> give me a lever and I can move the world. Ooh, speaking of which, I have a... F- a drawing of a man using a boat hook, flipping a, a Galapagos tortoise oh, well, from the engraving. You, yeah, well, there you go. That's interesting because he, uh, Darwin, at some point in this chapter, mentions that you know you can't really flip the Galapagos tortoise over, yeah. and and store it for food later because it can ride itself and mm-hmm. get away. And you know, six miles an hour. Um, no, it's four miles a day. a day. Four miles a day. Okay, four <laughs> miles a day. That's pretty. That's pretty. Better chase that. Looking at, um, <laughs> And, you know, it took five men to flip that thing over. That's a <laughs> so, lot of work. So can you read? There was a quote that I love where he, he first uh, in, first sees the tortoise in his hike. Yeah. So this this quote sort of conjures to mind images of the the awe that Darwin must have felt when he saw these these Galapagos tortoises. The day on which I visited the little craters was glowing hot. And the scrambling over the rough surface and through the intricate thickets was very fatiguing. I was so (laughs) tired, but I was well repaid by the cyclopean scene. In my walk, I met two large tortoises, each of which must have weighed at least 200 pounds. One was eating a piece of cactus, and when I approached, it looked at me and then quietly walked away. (laughs) The other gave a deep hiss and drew in its head. These huge reptiles, surrounded by the black lava, the leafless shrubs, and large cacti, appeared to my fancy like some antediluvian animals. (laughs) Do you know what cyclopean means? Uh, Single eye. One eye. (laughs) (laughs) One eye. Yep. <laughs> uh, it also means big. Um, oh. it, it's a description of size. So cyclopean simply means large, oh. like the the cyclops okay. was a giant of a right. of a creature. Um, uh-huh. So uh, it's an architectural term meaning like really big yeah. stones oh. that only a cyclops could have moved, uh, or ancient aliens, or ancient aliens. But oh, probably Lord. it was a cyclops. <laughs> we talk about cyclopses a lot on this show. Yes. Well, yeah, you- do have like external expertise here to bring to us. <laughs> so he he's struck by the large size of these animals, and these large animals were for over a hundred years harvested by sailors as a, a source of fresh meat. Right? They would grab these tortoises, throw them on the ship, and because the animals, I guess, for a long period of time could wouldn't need to eat or drink, so just keep them live mm-hmm. until you're ready to eat them. Yeah, and then butcher them and have fresh meat while you're sailing. And, and turtle the, soup. <laughs> and and Darwin ate tortoises, right? Mm-hmm. And he found them to be quite tasty, didn't he? 
Yeah. Did he? I thought, okay, no, I'm going to, I thought I remember him saying they were kind of bland. Isn't there a part in here where he talks but he, about, he talks like about they're the, kind of boring? The, the fat, the oil that they're, they're able to render from the fat being really clear and being somewhat impressed by that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if he enjoyed I just remember one part where he's saying like, eh, whatever, but sometimes they cook it like the way that the gauchos well, here's, cook Here's what he says. Stuff, While staying in this upper region, we lived entirely upon tortoise meat. The breastplate roasted as the gauchos mm. do con con cuero. <laughs> that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, with the flesh on it, is it is very good. And the young tortoises make excellent soup. But otherwise, the meat, to my taste, is indifferent. Ah, okay. Indifferent, yeah. Yeah, so. So one of the things that struck us is that, okay, t- tortoises are very interesting because, uh, of course, they're the terrestrial version of a turtle. Most turtles are aquatic. Tortoises... Um, have evolved very dry skin, scales, and behaviors and physiology to, to withstand the dry terrestrial environment. The Galapagos tortoises, as, as we were talking about earlier, the islands are very bare, uh, barren of vegetation, so there's not a lot of moisture through transpiration. The air is pretty dry because of the cold water around there, so it's a very arid area, except for, as you were saying, Sarah, high elevation where you do get some freshwater mm-hmm. ponds and or accumulation or plants Mm-hmm. sequester As moisture source, yeah. like a puntia so these these tortoises have evolved this uh, this weird trait what, you, what did you notice there when you saw them in galapagos or this idea of them being able to sequester lots of water from a pond right in their bladder yeah okay well i didn't observe it there oh but you didn't see it. yeah no i mean <sighs> you should get your money back for I that know. trip i know we didn't get to spend much time in the highlands Oh, is that yeah? What what do you know about this behavior? <laughs> well, so they they when they do get access to water, they kind of founder themselves, right? They just keep drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking, and um, I you know as I have often experienced, when you drink that much, it it leads to severe pressure on your bladder, <laughs> so they're filling up their bladder and essentially using it as a as a storage device, which is different though, right? I mean, usually we drink a lot of water, right. it goes in the and stomach, then it's, and then it's got to it, go out. Like there's eventually, no, it gets processed, right. but here they're like sort of bypassing the processing, right? And just moving it right to the bladder to yeah, store. right, exactly. So you can imagine like they go up, get big drinks and it's in there. And then as they need to use water, they're pulling it out of the bladder. And so their urine is becoming more and more concentrated through time. Right. But being pro- but for us, that would happen being processed by our kidneys. It just wouldn't make it to the bladder. But right. for them, it's in the bladder and, and then they're withdrawing water as they need it. And so what Darwin notices that these Tortoises, which usually live in the lowlands, feeding on vegetation, make their way upland to where there's pools of water, fill themselves up like a gas station, Mm -hmm. and then make their their way way back down to the lowlands. Yeah, they'll stay for days around the water. Yeah. um, Taking 10, sometimes up to 10 great mouthfuls in a minute. Wow. (laughs) So one of the reasons that we were... Talking about this is because, uh, you know, we've talked about how Darwin is willing to eat and try anything, right? Mm-hmm. So, again, we're on these chains of islands where fresh water is uh, challenging to get. Uh, Josh, he, he found the tortoises as a source of fresh water? That's right, yeah. So, um, he says... <clears throat> I believe it is well ascertained that the bladder of the frog acts as a reservoir for the moisture necessary to its existence. Such seems to be the case with the tortoise. For some time after a visit to the springs, their urinary bladders are distended with fluid, which is said gradually to decrease in volume and to become less pure. The inhabitants, when walking in the lower district and overcome... <laughs> <I'm> so thirsty. <laughs> and overcome with thirst, 
often take advantage of this circumstance. Circumstance. I can't say circumstance. And drink the contents of the bladder if full. In mm. one I saw killed, the fluid was quite limpid and had only a very slightly bitter taste. <laughs> the inhabitants, however, always first drink the water in the pericardium, which is uh, described as being best. Which so they're just walking around along. They're thirsty. It's what? hot here on the on the beach. Let's get um, a tortoise, bla- tortoise water. And there's a tortoise. <laughs> tortoise. Let's let's kill it and Take drink its from its bladder. <laughs> Steal its water, <laughs> which is obviously the first thing you would think of to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. Tortoise, a water bladder delivery device. <laughs> the thirst quencher. And the sad part about that is that you'd have no to gator. kill the tortoise and open to it up get, to yeah. go, oh, this one's empty. Ate. Oh, yeah. man. We make fun of that. But he talks later um, that the tortoise fat was, it was sought after, right? It was very um, uh, appreciated as a, as a source of food. And they would... They would go up to tortoises and they would slice the back of them and look inside to see yeah. if there was like fat deposits. To see how thick the yeah. fat was. Yeah. Right. If it's not enough fat, they would just let the tortoise live. <laughs> Which a lot, at least they did that. I mean, that yeah, that's true. true. Something. So there was a, it's a, they had, um, he talks about uh, being on an island and, and watching some Spaniards who, whose sole job, right, was one was butchering tortoises mm-hmm. and another one was going out and, and finding them and collecting them. So this, there was a large like a wholesale industry, slaughter yeah. of tortoises. It, it seems remarkable to me that... There are any left? Yes, that that exactly. we made it to a point when we protected them I, at all? I, I couldn't help but think about the uh, bison, right? Like yeah. the, the fact that early Americans just yeah. wiped them out, just shot them left and right. Um, just for fun. And but I mean, we also wholesale slaughtered them because of... Trying our to efforts kill the Indians. To, right. <laughs> like, take take yeah. resources away from the Native Americans. Right. So, but here... The thing, too, is with these reptiles, uh, the, I don't know what the rate of reproduction is, right? He talks about how they just drop eggs mm-hmm. in little crevices. Well, I think that the idea is that they, while they may produce a, a number of a good number of eggs, a, mm-hmm. a larger clutch size, a lot of those hatchlings are not going to make it into right. the water. Right. Or, or, do they go in the water? No. The, yeah, no. no. Land, yeah, yeah that, so they just get eaten yeah uh devastated so out of a hundred maybe you know a handful survive right and, and i don't i mean i don't know how long it takes to get to maturity like today in the galapagos there's charles darwin station um on um santa cruz island and they um uh have a very intensive breeding program where they've been bringing in um uh tortoises from different islands that they think are per- you know, at risk, mm-hmm. having them there, you know, that way they can keep the eggs and prevent a lot of that predation and other things that would um, cause them to die, in, um, including, you know, they worked really hard to try to get a little fella named Lonesome George <laughs> to get interested in, in a lady. And he never did. He never did? He never did. So he passed away? He did. No, oh. he moved to Kentucky and became a senator. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Mitch. <laughs> you can edit that out if you want to. Oh, no, I think no, it's too perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the current status of, of the Galapagos tortoise? And, and, uh, because the? Let's start with that word. Right. The. So uh, what is a species again? Um, <laughs> it's an arbitrarily cho- chosen term. Well, Darwin <laughs> describes the fact that they're, uh, well, it's, it's that um, 
I can't think of his name. The Lawson. Lawson, maybe. Mm-hmm. That is able to, you show him a tortoise. This is his superpower. Like he's <laughs> he's one of uh, Charles Xavier's gifted youngsters. <laughs> and his power is when he looks tortoise at a tortoise, detection. he knows exactly which island it came from. Based on its shell shape and size. Yeah. Yeah. And, right. you know, also, but you know what? There's a description Darwin has of, of this guy. He's a vice governor of, of, of the chain of islands. And the, the thing about him, though, Josh, is outside his house, he has tortoise shells being used as flower pots scattered <laughs> around his yard. And each tortoise shells from a different island. So I agree with you as a superpower, but it's more like a super evil power, right? <laughs> I have harvested these tortoises on all the different islands. So and he works with Magneto. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's one of those mutants. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right, Josh. He, 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 he says, uh, my attention was first called to this fact by the vice governor, Mr. Lawson, declaring that the t- tortoises differed from the different islands and that he could with certainty tell from which island any one was brought. I did not for some time pay sufficient attention to this statement, and I have already partially mingled together the collections from two of the islands. So that's actually one of the interesting sub-stories that we don't know about Darwin. I mean, sorry, that many people don't know about Darwin. He was he was a very avid collector. We talked about that. But on the islands, he got kind of sloppy. He wasn't really good at maintaining collections to the island because he didn't think it was that important, of course, because he didn't think the the species would be different between the islands. And it was uh, after the fact that he started to realize, I guess we'll talk later about the birds and other things, that he started to see that there was an association of the island with specific forms that at the time he didn't acknowledge or even appreciate. Yeah. So more recently, and this is from a paper by Miller et al. And Sarah, you sent this to me. Um, titled, uh, this is from 2017, titled Identification of Genetically Important Individuals of the Rediscovered Floriana uh, Galapagos Giant Tortoise Provide Founders for Species Restoration Program. And here we learn that there are 15 uh, species of Galapagos tortoise uh, identified from genetic markers. and But there's only 10 islands, right? Right. And so... Uh, <laughs> this is, this is why if you, if you, I went down a tortoise, the tortoise <laughs> hole today. Uh, <laughs> that, that the cloaca? I made it, I made it back. You went down the tortoise cloaca? Yeah. Uh, well, it's. I thought that was an see. Audi, not an any. Uh, it's, it's, it's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult thing to, <laughs> to penetrate. Uh, okay. <laughs> Is this supposed to be an educational program? I'm sorry. <laughs> In parts. <laughs> uh, so if you spend any time reading general sources about tortoises, what you learn is that uh, research is still ongoing. And if, if anything, this paper from last fall, uh, 2017, um, illustrates that. So what you'll learn is that there is an older genus name that most of the research is conducted uh on or, or uses. Um, and then uh, you learn that some researchers recognize 10 species, some researchers recognize 15 species. So it's, it really is kind of a, a complex and uh, somewhat uh, controversial area of study, at least it seems to me, from my mm-hmm. couple of hours of trying to dive into this. <laughs> well, it has conservation issues, right? So if you're right. talking yeah. about 15 species, that's going to be a different issue about conservation than if you're talking about 10 mm. species. Conservation and tourism. Right. Um, yeah. And also 
sort of local political issues mm-hmm. because uh, I, we didn't mention this, but after Lonesome George died, uh, he was preserved. And then uh, the Ecuadorian government wanted him in Ecuador and the Galapagos government wanted him in the Galapagos. And there was uh, some something of a scuffle. And last February, I believe, he, uh, came, home. he came home to the Galapagos. <laughs> so there, there really are some... Hmm. Um, complex you know, personal and scientific issues here. But, but you also point out that uh, interesting dynamic between Galapagos identifying itself as a, a, a specific identity that's separate from, separate from Ecuador. Ecuador. Mm-hmm. But the Ecuadorian government has uh, power over them mm-hmm. and has made decisions about um, when you can build a hotel or what's going to be protected and how many people can visit the island. Or so drilling offshore. Or drilling offshore, that sort of thing. And so Lonesome George was uh, functionally the last, we, uh, at least tortoise researchers thought at the time, the last uh, existing member of his species, which now I'm so lost in taxonomy, I'm not sure. Was it the Floriana? He's he was from Pinta, so Pinta. Okay, so but okay. my I don't my what I'm looking at is probably old. I have him as G. Abingdonia, but okay. from from Isla Pinta. But what's the point that he was a, a he was he was only guy from one of the islands. from one of the islands, right? right. So, yeah, exactly. And so what these researchers have done is uh, visited. Uh, various islands in the, in the Galapagos, collected blood samples, done uh, some genetic work, and found that uh, some of these individuals um, are actually hybrids, right, uh, which share genetic material mm-hmm. with Lonesome George. And, and um, so George wasn't necessarily the last of the whatever species of tortoise he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea is that um, these re- researchers say there may actually even be more of those of that species out there mm-hmm. right in the in the uh, uh, the wilds of uh, Ila Pinta is that the well he was from Pinta but like what, didn't they find it on Isabella that, Isabella that's is that, right the, is that the right? big island yeah, yeah the big island and I was trying to remember where Pinta was in relation so I'm looking at a map so Pinta is to the northeast of Isabella. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, and the dis- distance between these islands, Darwin talks about, is like can be very small, but be, yeah. fifty to sixty miles mm-hmm. for some. And he was struck by in that paragraph about Lawson identifying different mm-hmm. tortoises now, based on. And he said he found it hard to imagine that you, you could see that island, right? Yeah, Visually, how could you be different? Yeah, yeah from exactly. one island to another. Well, you're a really big terrestrial yeah. tortoise. <laughs> <laughs> it is hard to imagine, like these dudes, like. Surfing. Yeah. <laughs> well, you wonder, too, how much the sailors moved them from island to island. And so these yeah, authors... that's not enough time. Oh, but for hybridization. Not, oh, not to hybrid- create, okay, yeah, yeah to create so, the hybridization. So that's a good point. And these researchers speculate that that is why you see this uh, uh, diversity of tortoise species on Isabella. And oh. so... Because they were... Sailors were moving them to Isabella. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're... they're uh, purpose of their paper is to suggest that this genetic stock could be used to uh, breed rather than clone of uh, a replacement for Lonesome George and uh, lead to a reintroduction of that species to that island on the mm-hmm. Galapagos. And so that seems to be what they're building toward. Like maybe if there really are um, 
genetically, uh, I don't want to, the word pure is so weird for me <laughs> to say. Yeah. How about unique? unique? There you go. Um, individuals that, that have a uh, majority of their genetic stock is from uh, Lonesome George. Like they're more closely related mm-hmm. to Lonesome George than other, other individuals. Mm-hmm. Then they can do a similar strategy and ultimately reintroduce a tortoise to that island that is more Lonesome George tortoise than not. Right. Yeah. So gentle listener, you might be thinking, what the heck? We're talking <laughs> about tortoises. Who cares? But uh, we do I'll, – I'll put some on the, on the blog spot. Don't forget we have a discoveringdarwin.blogspot.com where we put up images that sort of reinforce some of the ideas. But just a good Google search. And Sarah, you have a field guide mm-hmm. of, of the Galapagos. Yep. Pretty cool. These, these animals are quite different from island to island. They're visually beautifully stunning in terms of shell shape and color, coloration even, I think. Somewhat. A, a little bit. It's it's much but, more the shape of the shell is the, yeah. the biggest thing. And, and the texture and, of the shell. Yeah. And also a big thing is a uh, really interesting thing is the shape of the shell right behind their head because you can tell what their um, feeding ecology is based on that. So some have a saddle shell where it goes way up above um, the base of the shell, which allows their necks to stretch much further up to, to browse oh. higher. Um, so that's one like really interesting characteristic. But yeah, they're 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 really variable and definitely go. Yeah, definitely. Look at that so stuff. you might appreciate why we care that some species, you know, are get to, to be uh, rescued from hybridization. I guess from extinction. From extinction, extinction in that yeah. case, yeah. Via hybridization. All right. Uh, before we leave tortoises, Josh, I, I think you told us a story about uh, Darwin riding a tortoise. Yeah, so here we have uh, a few examples of Darwin uh, at his silliest, and I, I, I know that Besides this drinking the fluid from the bladder of a tortoise—that's well, serious, James. That's harrowing to me. Like that is that is horrifying. Like you, you're, you're. Do you remember Bear Grylls and yes. and and his survival show yeah. where it wasn't really a survival show, but he drank his own urine yeah. anyway. Because it tastes good. Uh, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Puts like, hair on your chest. Like, uh, part of me hopes that some somebody who who was living on the Galapagos for a long period of time uh, saw this as an opportunity to just just prank Darwin <laughs> and say, you know, when we're thirsty, what we do is we kill a tortoise and we drink from its bladder. <laughs> Hmm. Well, I'd like to try that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's one right here. (laughs) He actually did it. I think it's also funny that he he compared it to when he drank it from a frog. (laughs) So So he's he's totally aware of this. He's a connoisseur and a gourmand. (laughs) Um, But my favorite thing here is that uh, he, he recounts the time when he tried to ride. The tortoise. (laughs) I kept thinking about Dune here as well. Yeah. Um, uh, He says, I was always amused when overtaking one of these great monsters as it was quietly pacing along to see how suddenly the instant I passed, it would draw in its head and legs and uttering a deep hiss fall to the ground with a heavy sound as if struck dead. I frequently got on their backs and then giving a few raps on the hinder part of their shells, (laughs) they would rise up and walk away. But I found it very difficult to keep my balance. And I really wish here he had said, <laughs> of the 12 times I attempted to ride the tortoise, I was successful three times. Yeah. <laughs> For a total of 15 yards. Right. Yeah, that was, that's the marker. Yeah. Right. Um, and I and, like... I, well, I love this too because there's that great image that one of Darwin's 
friends drew of him riding a beetle and like right. so that's what is in my my head is that same cartoon oh, yeah. can i eat it can i ride it <laughs> yes can i drink its urine <laughs> can I, you're in fresh from its dead body yes. or its heart warm Paracadium Del- deli- delicious and warm <laughs> so i like to also envision other members of the crew from the beagle saying Charles, quit screwing around. <laughs> what are you doing back there? Get off that Get tortoise off and let's tortoise. go. <laughs> I, I actually like this vision of him riding it going, giddy up. And it's going it's like, four boom, miles boom. a day. Yeah. <laughs> ho, ho there. Go. <laughs> what ho? But, you know, Darwin did uh, mention and was disturbed by the amount of harvesting of the tortoises, right? Even at that time period, he he, he mentioned that the, the, he was concerned, right, that they were they were killing many of them and, and harvesting them and was worried about their future. Mm-hmm. So, you, luckily, like, I don't... Did any of them go extinct since his Darwin's time to now? Besides, uh... Besides George? And, besides, and, and that extinction actually may be questionable, right? right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. So, somehow they did survive, which is shocking. Yeah. Considering their life cycle is probably pretty slow. Yeah. I mean, I think there's been... I mean, they really... They came under protection, I want to say, the Galapagos Islands in 1940, no, 19, probably 1950s after, because it's interesting, the U.S. Um, used one of the islands, Baltra, as a base during World War II, and actually the, the airport on the Galapagos today is that base. Oh. Um, so it's the same, la- I mean, they've done renovations, right. but it's the same landing strip, all of that kind of thing. Um, and so once the U.S. cleared out after World War II, that was when they installed some conservation protections hmm yeah all right so um do we want an iguana here you want an iguana here we can iguana right into iguana (laughs) let's stick with our reptile like reptile section yeah let's do that Uh, but i do want to put a uh, pin here to say that uh, contrary to most people's thought that it was the finches that really got darwin Mm -hmm. thinking about speciation by islands the the very first time he mentions it is the because of the Sky Lawson, right? Yeah, because the, he was like the one that pointed out, like, hey, you know, they have different shells from different islands. Yeah, and they're distinct by, based on the island, but he, related, right? But related, like, right? About that too. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, what about the iguanas? The imps of the imps, the Godzillas, the Godzillas. Yeah. <laughs> I, there's, so there's a there's a species of iguana on the island that is uh, a subspecies. Subspecies. Oh, yeah. okay, subspecies, but its name is Godzilla. Okay. So, Darwin talks about. Uh, seeing these lizards, right? These big lizards. Now, he has seen lizards like this before. Iguanas were pretty common Mm -hmm. throughout South America. Iguanas, as many of you know, are fairly large. They get up to about four feet long, maybe even six feet long. Um, Herbivorous lizards, which is interesting Mm -hmm. because if you think about most reptiles in the world today, today, they're carnivorous. Right, good point. Um, Primitive reptiles, the dinosaurs and other versions could get large and digest vegetation. But Iguanas and maybe like box turtles and a few tortoises um, are herbivores, but most reptiles are carnivores. So the iguana that he saw in South America, pretty common, pretty uh, uh, abundant animal. He comes to these islands and he sees two versions of this this thing, right, Sarah? Right, yeah. So there's a, there's a land iguana and a marine iguana, which that's just weird. Let's just start there. Marine <laughs> iguana, right? What else is a... Is the only marine lizard. lizard well, not yeah, reptile. lizard, right. Lizard, right, because when we talk lizard. about marine reptiles, what do we got? We got sea snakes, sea, sea, snakes tort- sea turtles, right. crocodiles. Yep. And, and other crocodilians. And I'm pretty much done, I think. Yeah. Nessie. Oh, and Nessie. Well, right, yeah. yeah. But that's freshwater. 
Okay. <laughs> oh, True. Well, okay. You got me there. Yeah. <laughs> so marine, because the salt water, right, mm-hmm. is a very difficult right. environment for uh, these animals that have uh, issues with water. Mm-hmm. So go ahead. The marine iguana, very weird. Right. So marine iguanas and um, y- yet another thing that Darwin just enjoyed messing with, of course. <laughs> but, um, you know, let's see. Uh, so like, let's just go with the messing with. Uh, This is from Darwin. I threw one, meaning marine iguana, several times as far as I could into a deep pool left by the retiring tide, but invariably it returned in a direct line to the spot where I stood. I several times caught this same lizard, driving it down to a point, and though possessed of such perfect powers of diving and swimming, nothing would induce it to enter the water. And as often as I threw it in, it returned in the manner above described. Perhaps the singular piece of apparent stupidity may be accounted for... by the circumstance that these reptile, that this reptile has no enemy whatever on shore, whereas at sea it must often fall prey to numerous sharks. Hence, probably urged by fixed and hereditary instinct that the shore is a safe place of safety, whatever the emergency may be, it there takes refuge. So even though it's marine, mm-hmm. it doesn't like <laughs> right. to hang out in the water. And he caught some and cut open their guts, right? Mm-hmm. And what did he find inside their bellies? A bunch of green algae. Green algae, and which they can only get out of the, in the water in the ocean. Yeah. So these things are frequently seen. They have they have a tail that's modified mm-hmm. for swimming, right? A long, flattened uh, dorsal, eventually flattened tail. Aunt Sarah's doing the <laughs> the marine iguana dance. <laughs> um, I think I saw her. Now she's doing the batsuki. No. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so these animals are adapted to jump in the water, swim out, grab some algae, graze, essentially graze. Right. Yeah. And then come swim back and mm-hmm. on the hot black lava rock. Cook all that algae in there. Yeah, and Kinda, reheat I mean, themselves. Yeah. And so they're very comfortable in the water. They're very uh they're adapted well adapted to swim in the water. But yet he says yeah. they don't like they don't being, like it there. They don't like it in there. And the other thing I, I thought was interesting that he talks about um a, a short quote that he says, um, Mr. Bell has given the name to the genus from the shortness of the stout. Indeed, the form of the mouth may almost be compared to that of the tortoise. One is led to suppose that this is an adaptation to their herbivorous habitat, uh, appetites. So both the land and the marine are herbivores. Um, and when you look at, I mean, I think it's one of the times when he talks about how ugly they are. Is They really have um, blunt snouts mm-hmm. um, so that they can get in there and scrape the algae off the, the lava, the rocks of lava in the ocean. In the ocean. Yeah. They're fun to watch on land. Like, so, you know, I saw them and, you know, when they come up on land after they are coming out of the ocean, you know, they're squirting the salt water out of their nostrils, you know, so that's, that's kind of fun to see. Um, and they're, they're pretty, you know, one of the things is they're variable among islands in terms of their coloration. So, um, on some islands, they're really red on some islands. They're really black. Um, they're, uh, they have crests down, uh, their back that mm-hmm. can be really variable in terms of how, f- um, showy they are. That was something I enjoyed was just kind of paying attention to them. Like, hmm, how and, are you guys different on this island? And they are very primordial looking, right? Cause Darwin <laughs> refers to them as the imps of darkness. And, and is this like a t- Peter Dinklage comparison here or something (laughs) (laughs) imps of darkness are a challenge level one one hit die (laughs) but um a recent paper that came out in 2017 and they actually use that as in their title of the paper uh says the shedding light on the imps of darkness an integrative taxonomic revision of the galapagos marine iguanas 
and one of the things that strikes me is you were just talking, Josh, about the tortoises, and and there's the, this system is still a very active area for research, right? Researchers are still trying to figure out the relatedness of these different uh, taxonomic groups on, scattered amongst the Galapagos Islands. And uh, the marine iguanas, there was some sense of uh, that they are quite old. And they're, in fact, they think they evolved about 8 to 10 million years ago, which is actually a time period prior to the appearance of the Galapagos Islands. So, Or at least the ones that are currently above water, is that the yes, idea? Yes, exactly. Okay. Right. So they evolved probably in islands that are now long submerged under the ocean, but they migrate from island to island. And so what they now, this is a, a paper that um, uses a lot of modern molecular techniques and modern statistical analysis. And they end up with that there's... Um, uh, 11 divergent subspecies of marine iguanas amongst those 10 islands. Again, I think it's interesting to me that we end up with these subspecies groupings that are exceeding the number of islands. Yeah. Isabella, like, has a lot of, because it's so big. Oh, okay. That you have, usually I have multiples. Multiple different, let's yeah. see here. This, they have, uh, this is a beautiful paper with yeah, lots of nice uh, images. Nice so. images. And they have maps. And I want to see if Isabella has multiple. Uh, okay. that's, oh, taxonomy proposed by us. They're actually lumping that island, Isabella, with Ferdinino. Ferdinino. So they got two on San Cristobal, it looks like. Yeah. Which is an old, one yes. of the oldest islands, so maybe that oh. makes sense. Oh, so yeah, they have two on San Cristobal, which, as you just said, is the oldest island, and each other island has their own uh, subspecies cluster. But the fact that they're still trying to figure out the taxonomic relationship between these, and that becomes, again, as we said before, a conservation issue, mm -hmm. like as they monitor these populations and, and watch them, they have to sort of make sure that they uh, are stay as a healthy population. Were they very abundant, Sarah, when you were on the island? I mean, are they as abundant the as marine? Darwin? Yeah, Darwin describes yeah. these lizards as just everywhere. They were. They were. Um, yeah, I had a lot of fun watching them, and um, <laughs> sea lions seemed to find them entertaining, too. So I recall being on, I'm not going to remember what island we were on, but one sea lion had gotten a hold of a younger marine iguana, and was just throwing it into the air with his head. And so you just see this marine iguana cartwheeling through the air, <laughs> and then it'd land on the ground, the sea lion would pick it up and throw it again. It's channeling Darwin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. they are everywhere. And Darwin describes, I think, uh, the crabs coming up and crawling over the backs of the iguanas and picking ticks off them. And and, yeah. and, 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 and he even talks about how the iguanas were like dogs. Well, actually, the terrestrial iguanas were like dogs f fighting over pieces of a puntia cactus. And Yeah, and, and that's an interesting one because, like, at least as far as my, my guide told me when I was there, is that there are uh, two species of land iguanas, so actual species, not subspecies species and then one hybrid oh. of the two so um the land iguana um the main species is found on all the main islands but um there's a sp special one con called the santa fe that's only found on the santa fe island so so i don't know the terrestrial iguanas so are they visually similar to an iguana when we think about a south american iguana do they have the big beard and the the, 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 not, the crestle on the back much um she's showing so me they a are very um the, the thing that's so striking about them is how yellow they are on on um, santa fe they're very uh squat and robust where right. the iguanas are a little on bit the, more gray side yeah they're very long and thin yeah. these things are sort of like a, a danny devito of lizards <laughs> Right, that's kind of yes. what they are. Whereas the iguanas that you think of are uh, what do you more think like of? Ryan Gosling. Yeah, <laughs> Ryan Gosling of, of iguanas. 
Yeah, actually, now that I look at all of them, I see Danny DeVito in every, <laughs> everywhere. Every, everywhere. <laughs> and they have those stub noses too, like snouts, like like Danny DeVito. <laughs> do, you, do you know if the terrestrial and marine iguanas are related? Yes, they are. Closely or? Well, they, they both came from the ancestral. From a common ancestor. Yes, okay. of the terrestrial. They're both in the same. Oh, no, they're not. They're not. At least in my, they're not in the same genus in my. Oh, yeah, definitely not the same genus, yeah, but they're okay. from the same right. ancestral li- lineage just, of the iguana yeah. from the mainland. Okay. So we have an iguana that somehow colonized these islands and then. 10 million, 8 million years ago, split to start specializing, swimming in the ocean, right. eating algae. Yes. Which is a very odd uh, sort of niche to, to, to fill. Yeah. Um, and they still are terrestrial, right? Because Darwin says, I throw them out in the water. They, <laughs> they come back. They come back. <laughs> That's the safe place to be. Yeah. And there's been cool research done on um, like sexual selection with these, these marine guanas too, in terms of like holding territories in order to meet with females. Like there's some really classic... Hmm. Um, sexual selection studies that have been done with them as well. So, so did Darwin, he didn't see them as, uh, as I recall, associated with different islands, right? He didn't, he didn't see the speciation yeah. events that we're talking no, about. No, I think he was really just like, whoa, dude, there's like marine iguanas. Right. Yeah. It's a marine iguana right. versus many subspecies, yeah. which. And, not, and I don't even, and I don't think with a land, igu- like he pretty much was like, there's a land iguana and there's a marine iguana. Right. And that was kind of his thing. Which, you know. Maybe the subtleties, but you point out the, the, the variation in the marine iguanas is pretty striking in yeah. terms of coloration. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, I wonder why he didn't pick up on that, but he didn't. Yeah. Any other thoughts about the marine iguanas? He didn't eat them, so nope. we don't know how they yeah. taste. Yeah. But I imagine it's chicken. That's a yeah. big question mark, yeah. Yeah, big, <laughs> big question mark. All right. Well, when we come back, we will talk about Darwin and mockingbirds and finches. You're listening to Discovering back to Discovering Darwin, where we chat about Darwin's musings and writings and also make corrections, James. Corrections? <laughs> but how? But we're always right. <laughs> we said that uh, Darwin did not taste these uh, marine lizards. Oh, the iguanas. Um, the, the iguanas. And it says um, that... Darwin says. Darwin says, these oh. lizards, when cooked, yield a white meat, which is liked by those whose stomachs soar above all prejudices. <laughs> Which is kind of non-committal. We're not sure. Yeah, if, like, is that good or is, is it, it just? Well, also, is it secondhand or is it firsthand knowledge? Oh, well, that's true. So it, 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 wait, so it soars above. It soars above all prejudices. It is liked by those whose oh, stomachs soar oh. above all prejudices. Oh, I get. If you're willing to eat it, you like it. Yeah. Mm. Mm. That that's a, that I think is a ringing endorsement. Try our food. If you're willing to eat it, it's good. You'll like it. <laughs> All right. So it does sound like it's chicken, though. It's so white meat. Th- yeah, we probably should. Season three is as Sarah wants to do. Yeah. Everything Darwin ate. I think we should try to eat it. <laughs> I think that. I think we'd get arrested. <laughs> well, I go to the Galapagos be... and kill and eat an iguana. I think that would be a fun premise for a class. Yes. <laughs> Even if you don't actually eat the food, like, yes, that's your. 
your impetus for reading the the chapters in yeah. Darwin. All right, so this section we're going to talk about the most classic aspect of Darwin and the Galapagos Islands, and that's the finches, and also the mocking birds or mocking thrushes, as he calls them in his text, which don't get as much uh, press but are as important for Darwin understanding the, this concept of uh, transmutation of species. Well, the finches are the poster child, the poster species right. of, of Darwin's theory of natural selection, right? Like in high school biology, when you get to the evolution chapter, there's the, the finch tree. figure one is the, the finches, right? Right. And there's this kind of myth that Darwin is traveling along, gets to the Galapagos, sees these finches with different beaks and goes, oh, Eureka, evolution. But it wasn't really until later that he notices these differences, right? right? Yes. Well, yeah, because he wasn't even painting. He's just like, I just think about him and he's just like, I will collect all the things, right? right? And he's I not like- I will shoot like, and collect. Yeah. Or, like, or I, kill it with a hat. Yes, right. exactly. Yes. He didn't even have to shoot these things. Yeah. No. So I, I kind of feel like at one level, he's like not processing a lot in, in terms of that. And then like, um, yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this with the Mockingbirds about how he does talk about- that hey, there's unique things going on, unique islands. But I'm looking at this this guide that I have for the Galapagos, and you know, any of you who do, do bird at all know that mockingbirds are not showy <laughs> birds. Right, gray birds with little white flashing. Exactly. And so I'm looking at this page that's showing the four species of mockingbirds. And honestly, if I didn't know just because I was on certain islands and therefore I was looking at a certain one, I wouldn't know. Which but I'm looking at four different species so mm -hmm. i think it's pretty amazing that he even noticed that at all well he right he he collected them and was struck by that but what was what confused him right is he collected all the finches and the, all these finches have different beak sizes mm -hmm. and he put them in categories that made sense to him yeah. which were incorrect right he said oh these are finch big beaks big beaks and they're finches and these are not finches these are more like icterids which are blackbirds mm -hmm. uh and uh orioles which is a totally different group of birds mm -hmm. because their beak shape mimic that. Yeah. And then he said, oh, this bird over here with a really, the cactus wren, uh, finches with a very delicate beak, they must be a wren. A wren, yeah. So he actually forced the, the, all the finches into different families of birds that he thought made sense based on their beak shape because he didn't recognize that they were all finches. And on top of that, he wasn't keeping very good track of what island they came from right. for the finches. So like he says, unfortunately, most finches, most specimens of the finch tribe were mingled together. But I have strong reasons to sub suspect that some species of the subgroup Geospiza are confined to separate islands. So there were a lot of things about how he was thinking about it as he was collecting, how he's noting them as he was collecting that uh, and, he wasn't seeing those things. Right. And to remember that this, what he just wrote, what you just read was 10, ten years, years later. later, right? And so yeah. he, he did have a chance to have this stuff returned. The first mate on the Beagle was a young man who was a very avid collector of birds himself and also kept better records. And Darwin went back to him and got his information and coordinated Darwin's collection with that young uh, first mate or the, the cabin boy's collection so that he had a better sense of where he got his birds. And that helped when he went, he sent them to Gould, Gould, who did all the identification and said to G Darwin, uh, no, these are all finches yeah. or right. sparrows as you're, uh, you know, you may or may not know birds, but you've seen sparrows in your yard. We're talking about variations in sparrows. And if we think back to on the origin of species in the chapter on geographical distribution, 
Um, he says, the most striking and important fact for us in regard to the inhabitants of islands is their affinity to those of the nearest mainland without actually being the same species. In the Galapagos archipelago, almost every product of the land and water bears the unmistakable stamp of the American continent. There are 26 land birds, and 25 of these are ranked by Mr. Gould as distinct species, supposed to have been created here, yet the close affinity of most of these birds to American species in every character, in their habits, gestures, and tones of voice was manifest. So he, he, he's saying they are uniquely distinct. And yet. And yet similar to birds of the continent mm-hmm. nearby, yeah. right? And and so, we, you know, as we said, most of it, people are, like you said, Josh, most people are familiar with the finches as a story, but there was another group of birds that actually resonated with him, and that's the mockingbirds, right, Sarah? Right. And you said that the modern molecular data is kind of shocking and where they think that bird actually originated from. Yeah, right. So um, two studies, um, one by... Uh, Arbogast in 2016 and one by Levette in 2012 have looked at the phylogenies of um, mockingbirds globally and constructed some um, trees for them. And um, so a couple things. One, confirmation that there was a single colonization of the Galapagos Islands by by a colonizing finch so that they are a fin- monophyletic mockingbird. Mockingbird. Why am I saying that? Because most people think they are there and they are not going to let go. Um, and uh, so um, traditionally the, the mockingbirds on the Galapagos have been assigned to the genus Nesomimus. Um, and then other mockingbirds that you might know from say North America, Central America, South America are usually assigned to Mimus. And what what we found is that the they've they've given up Nisamimus because they are just within the Mimus group, so so that's interesting, which shows that they are just a part of the American um, mockingbird group. But most strikingly was that they have found that the sister species, so the species most closely related to the Galapagos mockingbirds, is the Bahama mockingbird. Mocking. Which is way on in the other the side. In the Caribbean. <laughs> right. not the, and not the, the mockingbirds that are found in South America. That would along the, the coast. Closest. Yeah. Right. Huh. It, that's very interesting. Yeah. So, so that certainly tells us something. In general, mockingbirds seem to be um, good at dispersing across water because of the fact that they've colonized all these different li- islands in the Caribbean and the Galapagos. And there's a Mexican island owned by Mexico that's pretty far mm-hmm. off also. Um, so they, they just seem to be good at getting across water. It's like we were saying that in the voyage, Darwin is he has better information about the mockingbirds because there's just a few species. Mm-hmm. His uh, information about the finches was kind of muddled because his own poor record keeping and, and him trying to clarify the collection and in the voyages he says the following he says um i have strong reasons to suspect that some of the species of the subgroup geospiza which is the finches Mm -hmm. are confined to separate islands right so later of course that gets that gets uh, validated that in fact they are uh uh, correlated with different islands and so the the idea of speciation by islands is true but Mm -hmm. at that time of writing the voyages he had better information about the, the mockingbirds than mm-hmm. he did about the, the finches. Yeah. And and so the one thing that I will say about the finches, since we're kind of just m- mixing these guys all together, is that he does say in the voyage, um, 
referring to the actually to the finches this time, <laughs> seeing the gradation and diversity of structures and beak in one small, intimately related group of birds, one might really fancy that from the original paucity of birds in this archipelago, one species had been taken and modified for different ends. <laughs> Sounds like evolution. Yep. Kind of putting out there, but I'm not quite <laughs> sure. So, you know, I, I you know, uh, dear listener, one of the things I'd like you to, to understand is that the the myth that it was the finches and him seeing them made him say, oh, evolution's real, but it wasn't. And, you know, he the tortoises were huge, and the mockingbirds, because there's only four of them. And, and like you said, Sarah, it, it is amazing. He recognized them as different species, um, even very early on. Mm-hmm. Um, his understanding of the what he had as finches was confused. Yeah. And so that took a while yeah. to get that clarified and for him to then add to that sort of argument that all of these different organisms um, are distinctly different species associated with different islands. Mm-hmm. And and again, I think it's important, like you said, that these are things that didn't get clarified for him until Gould, an expert, looked at this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the other thing that he talks about in this in this chapter that I was struck by, I don't know if any of you guys were struck by this, is this idea that he, and it, it kind of depresses me. I, um, he talks about going on these islands and just birds not being afraid, right? Landing on you. He holds a, a, a shell, a tortoise shell with water in it. And a bird lands on the shell and drinks water from the shell and he can just sort of touch the bird because it's not afraid of him. And I, as an undergrad, right after undergraduate school, I worked at Archbald Biological Station, which is in, in Florida, where they've done uh, research on scrub jays. And in that area, it's been protected for since the 1920s. And the birds there are pretty much, they're not afraid of humans mm-hmm. because there's no hunting and there's no uh, human interaction that's negative to the birds. So they don't associate humans with, with danger. And so you can walk around the Florida scrub in Archbald and, and a scrub jay will land on your head mm-hmm. and act like you're just a tree or a cow or whatever. And Darwin talks about that, right, in, in the islands. And mm-hmm. it's both, to me, very poignant and also very sad because he's talking about a world in which animals are not afraid of humans. Mm-hmm. They don't see us as a danger. Well, what what bird predators were present on the Galapagos. There was a hawk, right? A hawk. Yeah. But like he speaks about the hawk and this is where I should have looked into this. He speaks of the hawk as a carrion feeder. Yeah, it's more like a caracara, which is a, a weird sort of hybrid hawk carrion feeder yeah. kind of thing that kind of hops around and gr- takes advantage of, yeah. of I mean, of I definitely things. saw them when we were there, but I never saw them in action. Right, but Josh, they would you're right, there's predators there, but they didn't associate humans as a predator, right? They they, they treated the birds of that area treated you as if you were a tortoise. I think the thing that's surprising to me is that humans had been visiting the Galapagos since the 1600s, and mm-hmm. they are not afraid of humans. Right. Even even though he talks about that you could kill birds with, yeah. a, with a hat, <laughs> you could just grab them and wring their necks. And then there are people talking about how, how in, within an hour I killed 15 birds with a stick. Mm-hmm. Why? Because I, I, I could, yeah. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Well, dudes, uh, I guess my dudes. point is that, dudes. like, uh, having worked with birds and captured birds and had various species of birds in the hand, like, some some groups, like warblers, are remarkably docile mm-hmm. and just sort of lay there and let you band them and, and do whatever. Whereas, but that's once you've captured and them. cardinals are just, like, they bastards. try to eat you. Right. Yeah. Cardinals will bite the 
<laughs> I a cardinal made me bleed. Yeah. yeah. So, but but that's different, Josh. That, <laughs> and right, they make me cry. <laughs> That's once you have them in hand, but you can't walk in your yard up to a cardinal and and, and touch it. Which or, but you could but is that and, because is that because I guess I'm unclear. Is that because at some point humans shot cardinals, or or why are cardinals afraid of humans? Well, that's the cool thing, right? So Darwin talks about how he compares birds um, on these islands in these places where they have very little encounter with humans compared to the birds of England. Right. And, and, the, and, and, or birds that migrate. Mm-hmm. Cause he talks about, um, even formerly when all the birds were so tame. Now he uses the word interesting to me. There's this yeah, concept kind of, of tame and wild. So he calls birds that are not afraid of humans as being tame. And those birds that are afraid of humans as being wild, but one could argue that's the inverse, right? Mm-hmm. We have evolved. Because if you them. haven't encountered humans, you should not that's, be afraid of them. That's right. Your wi- the wild condition should be not yeah. afraid of humans, like those penguins in the South America, you know, South uh, Pole. And then, the, the, right, the derived condition is to be afraid of us. But he says here, even formerly when all the birds were so tame, it was impossible by this person's account to kill the black-necked swan, a bird of passage, would probably brought with it the wisdom learnt in foreign countries. Whereas in the 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 birds that are native to the Falklands, you could just go up and hit them with a stick. So, so the the, yeah. the non migratory birds were unaware of humans and they could kill them. Migratory birds terrified of humans. And I'm curious about this in that maybe like so I'm gonna I'm gonna flip it on its head. Is that um, much like today in the Galapagos where the beard, birds don't fear you because they're protected from you, like you experienced in Archibald. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if during Darwin's time it was that, for the most part, human beings didn't really care about the birds. They are like, we're going to get some tortoises. Mm-hmm. And so they were Occasionally. indifferent to them because they've actually encountered humans and don't startle to humans then because they weren't really going to bother them. It wasn't going to reduce their fitness to not flee in the right. presence of a yeah. human. And that seems more consistent with the, like, yeah, like, why do cardinals leave? Because we've never hunted cardinals. <laughs> right. I guess I'm I'm questioning the anthropocentrism of yeah. this. Like, I, I perceive it as, as less of a, a human-induced response and more of a, um, there really aren't a lot of bird predators on the Galapagos, so they, they no, just... Yeah, I, I don't think that's the case, though. I, th- I think it really is... Why? Why? Well, because Archbold, for example, where I where I worked in Archbold, those but birds. Of, but that's a there's a like strong selection of humans not being a risk. Right, and so, but there's still predators. There's still hawks. There's still owls. There's yeah. still uh, falcons. And so but that that could be a more like specific. I don't know response of. I'm struggling with this. Well, I'm I wrestling think, with it. You're wrestling with it. <laughs> wrestling. Well, here's the. <laughs> Well, you know, so the the thing, Josh, I think it's interesting is that if you think about birds dealing with humans and that humans kill them, right? And he tells stories of a little kid sitting by a, a well with a stick and just has a pile of dead birds, like whack, 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 right? So one of the things that you can imagine for a cardinal here in Kentucky as a population of cardinals Selection favors you to be afraid of humans because if you allow a human to walk up to you, they might hurt you. So, but then selection favors you not to be terrified of humans because you would never nest in their yards, right? So you have this kind of interesting, right, stabilizing selection. Be very, very cautious, but don't be so overly cautious that you can never nest, 
right? So you end up with this kind of intermediate, I'm afraid of you because if I'm not, I get killed. Not you, Josh. You may not kill a cardinal, but there's some little kid, (laughs) nine-year-old kid. No, if I see a cardinal. (laughs) (laughs) You're dead. You're dead to me. (laughs) You're dead to me. You You know what I'm saying here? Yeah, I I do. I I I guess I'm bogging us down in um No, I mean I think it's an interesting thing because it is both from the like the use of of terminology to say that something is tame if it deals with humans. Like squirrels in Lexington mm-hmm. yeah. are not afraid of you. Yeah, but you can't touch them. Whereas these it's birds tr- That's true. In that's South true. In, in Galapagos, he, you could walk up and just Pick them up. You could touch them. You could pet them. So, but is that not like, this is where I'm, now I'm struggling again, because it's not that they, is it that they don't recognize you as a predator, but is it more so like Archibald? That's my, that is my point where I'm at. I I think it's that they don't recognize you as a threat. You are not a threat. You're a tree. But if you really got these freaking little kids knocking the, Knocking them out. Well, you're right. In the Galapagos, you're talking about, but the 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 rate of that actually being a selective force is probably rare. There's not a lot of kids. The sailors occasionally would be like, "Wee, let's go kill these birds," or like Darwin even said, "You, you could you could whack birds with his hat." Let's kill these birds. That's what the sailors do. I guess the point is that. He lived in a time that is, to me, very magical, right? You go on an island, and the animals and everything is just not afraid of you. The, 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 the lizards, the, the, the iguanas ignored you. And you experienced that yourself, Sarah, when you went to Galapagos, right? You yeah. walked up to boobies. I did. You I walked, creeped on boobies. You creeped on boobies, and they did not care, right? The yes. iguanas did not care. Nothing right. ran away from you. No. Nothing reacted to you like it does in our everyday experience. Yes, Josh, you're right. Squirrels are pretty much like, yeah, I, I'm not too afraid of you. But get close enough, they'll run away. Or if you got food, they'll attack you and take it from you. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, they're 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 pretty vicious. <laughs> All right, I don't know where we are. Where are we here? Well, we were wrapping up with with birds, and I think we were going to transition into plants. Oh, that so is yeah. Correct. So ultimately, Darwin immediately got some like, hey, there's something weird going on with the mockingbirds. Only after Gould talked to him about what he really had for birds, he's like, oh, hey. This might show something. And he said it in the Beagle, right? Mm-hmm. But, it, like, that was 10 years after he was there. Um, and, hey, there's some weird stuff going on with tameness and wildness and what that means. Right. And I think that's important because he starts to realize that um, selection can change uh, organisms. If you have a, a selection factor, I'm going to kill you, you will select out those birds that are unafraid of humans. And you will select for uh, birds that he calls wild Yes. Which is interesting, right? The, those organisms that are afraid of humans yeah. are now considered wild, <laughs> which I think is a weird uh, definition of, of wildness. But unfortunately, that's where we are. Yeah. So, okay. So uh, when we come back, we're going to take a short break so you can listen to some cool music. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what, Sarah? We're going to talk about plants. Plants. It's plants. a completely different kingdom. We're going to a different kingdom. Yes. Kingdom. Yes. And uh, you're listening to Discovering Darwin. Wow, 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 wow. 
Hey, welcome back to Discovering Darwin, where we've been exploring Darwin's uh, expedition on the Galapagos Islands, where he collected and encountered many different organisms, both uh, reptiles, birds, and we're going to now talk about the impact plants had on Darwin thinking about the transmutation of species, that species are not fixed in place. So Sarah, what did Darwin notice about plants? So um, first of all, he kind of gave us a breakdown of the the number of um, species that he was aware of. So he says, of the flowering plants, there are, as far as at present is known, 185 species and 40 cryptogamic species, making together 225. Of this number, I was fortunate enough to bring home 193. Of the flowering plants, 100 are new species and are probably confined to this archipelago. So he's already noticing that there seem to be unique species endemic only to the Galapagos. And then he really uh, looks at that there's just a couple of um, groups then that really seem to be present on the island. So he follows on. (laughs) The peculiarity of the Galapagayan flora is best shown in certain families. Thus, there are 21 species of compositae, of which 20 are peculiar to this archipelago. Those belong to 12 genera. And of these genera, no less than 10 are confined to the archipelago. Dr. Hooker informs me that the flora has an undoubted Western American character, nor can he detect it in any affinity with that of the Pacific. If, therefore, we expect the 18 marine, the one freshwater, the one land shell, which have apparently come here as colonists from the central islands of the Pacific, the likewise... Uh, and likewise, the one distinct Pacific species of the Galapagian group of finches, we see that this archipelago, though standing in the Pacific Ocean, is zoologically part of America. I don't know why it transitions into. Well, I think it's what's. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead, Josh. There, well, I was going to say, like, uh, he does, uh, as I said earlier in the, the episode, he does kind of backtrack a lot. Mm-hmm. And toward the end of this chapter, he goes into the fact that um, these Galapagos Islands were probably never unified. Like mm-hmm. it was never a, a small miniature uh, Pangea yeah. that, that broke up. The, each island rose independent of the others. Mm-hmm. And, and that is important for the, the point that Darwin tries to make, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think um, the thing that's interesting about the plants um, on the island then is that he does notice that you have just a few um, groups that seem to diversify. And so the two that I would really like to point out, which one didn't come out in the the quotes I chose, but um, one is a group of cacti, the Apuntian. Several of you, I'm sure, are acquainted with this species, which is known as the prickly pear right. in common parlance. And um, there are um, several different species of these on the Galapagos, including then many subspecies. And they have a really variable um, morphology. Some of them are almost tree-like. They actually have trunks and so that their pads are above the ground. And and this is hypothesized to be an adaptation to avoid um, herbivory by tortoises. Uh, the other group is a group in the aster family or the daisy family that, that was referred to in that quote I had of the compositae. And these are the, I'm trying to find the name of the stupid group because I never remember it. <laughs> um, the Scalicia. Scalicia, I think is how you say it. Um, and there's something like 20 species of that group on the island. And they, they have inhabited every... 
um, uh, kind of ecotone group there. So all the way from the arid on the base to the very wet at the top, you can see that these guys, the, this group has filled a lot of niches that would normally be filled by very diverse, diverse different groups. plants. Right. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that he notices that taxonomically, if you think about kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, right, that the diversity is at a higher level than species level, right, that you have a few species in this family and a few species in this family, and that, the, and so he, he notices with insects that there is a, a depauperate number of insects there, mm-hmm. and the, those that are there, then there's like, they're, they're like, right, they're, they're, this family is represented by a couple of species, and that's it. So they get colonized by something that then fills in, like you said, Sarah, all the niches mm-hmm. for that group. But it's it's a weird diversity uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. So um, you would expect many, many different families and many different genuses and many different species. But what you find is a single family with a genus and maybe what we now call different species mm-hmm. versus not a lot of different genuses right? Right. and not a lot of different families. Right. And so the, the diversity is at a very low taxonomic level instead of a very high taxonomic right. level, yeah, which exactly. is weird when you compare it to the continents. Right. But in our current understanding of evolution, it makes perfect sense, right. right? Whoever that was that got there, got there and, and took whatever ecological space was available and diversified. But yeah, at this point, Darwin's kind of like, well, this is weird. <laughs> this is weird, right. And, right? and and Josh, as you and I are both entomologists, he was struck by how poor the insects diversity was on the islands. Yeah, right? he didn't find very many insects, and the ones, many of the ones that he found, were fairly common uh, groups that right. you would expect to find. And and they were flying insects, Diptera flies right. and Hymenoptera wasps, but mm-hmm. you didn't see a lot of really cool insects. And he was and like mosquitoes. You and I were talking about mosquitoes being an important. Uh, predator and or vector for disease in Hawaii. Native Hawaii did not have mosquitoes until Europeans brought them. Thanks. And then the Galapagos didn't have native uh, mosquitoes, even though there's water mm-hmm. and there's stagnant water and the, the environment is perfect for mosquitoes. They had never colonized the island until I guess Europeans brought them. So, you know, just for those of you like me who are not um, entomologists, unlike my esteemed colleagues, I just want you to realize when they talk about it's really depauperate of insects that my field guide says that there are over 1,700 species of insects on the Galapagos. But, ha- it's, it's, but it's, how it's, many are native? Uh, yeah. How many are endemic and native? Yeah. You, uh, they, they didn't specify that necessarily. Yeah, because I was looking yeah. to your There field. are a lot of eyes in Yeah, <laughs> eyes being introduced. Yeah. Uh, Darwin says there are 25 uh, species of beetle and just, you know, a, a handful of various families that you would expect to find that probably were inadvertently introduced at the time. Right. And Darwin loved beetles, right? He, he would have focused on collecting beetles, and he only got 25 different species. And you think, you know, go back to the coast of South America, you would be thousands of species of beetles, tens of thousands of species. So the fact that there was such a low diversity... Um, struck him as very interesting. I bet he didn't put any of them in his mouth. No, probably <laughs> not. Just, just tortoise Only. urine. Yeah. <laughs> Only in desperation. All right. So he, Sarah, you're pointing out that that I, I think that's been. Oh, I think it's following like we've seen with everything we've talked about, or not everything because the iguanas didn't really do this, but just generally this idea of these like small groups 
and and then diversifying. But, and these but really the plants don't patterns. get don't get the, the the same media attention as well, finches yeah. or tortoises. But, yeah, and in fact, as we were prepping on this, I I even though I am supposedly the botanist, kind of skipped over it under the assumption, well, nobody wants to hear about this, and I I think that's part of it is that. Most people, unlike me, don't see plants as charismatic. <laughs> right. But but he found that pattern was the same, yes, right? Exactly. That the plants were right. endemic to and that area. And in some ways he saw it as much stronger. Like the one table of data in here is about the plants and how many plants, not only were they endemic to the Galapagos, not only were they highly spe speciose, but he found that you would have certain um, he he kind of categorized that hey there's 36 species only found on Genovesa and there's mm -hmm. you know this number of plants only found on this other island so it it was a pretty big part actually so we didn't talk about it but also if you read the voyage he spends a, a half a page talking about seashells in the mm -hmm. same kind of pattern mm -hmm. and so the point we're trying to make here is that for Darwin the, his experience with the Galapagos was this uh, multifaceted uh, examples of speciation that fit this pattern of each island had distinct species that were, you know, related to that island for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. But it also didn't make sense, right? It wasn't like mm -hmm. they were specially created to fit this environment. Right. Because, well, because yeah, I, I think that he's he's been to a lot of volcanic islands right. on this trip so far. Cape Verde. Exactly. The very first island he visited. And so the logic would say, hey, the islands I find on this volcanic island should be similar to the island to the species I find on that volcanic island. And what did he actually find? He James? found that, right. He points out that the, the species on Cape Verde were like African species, but the species in Galapagos were most closely related to South American, or as you or pointed maybe out, Caribbean, Caribbean <laughs> but not African, yeah. or uniquely created for yeah. that island. islandy volcanic. Yeah. And then even within the islands, there was distinct right. entities. Why would the, you know, one island tortoise be better than any other island? That tortoise? I can see the next island over from the right. island I'm on. Yeah. So, he, so it was a very, um, you know, for him, it was a very interesting problem, and you know, he was. You know, we've talked about this. This is where Darwin, at a, you know, 30, 26 to 35 years of age, is wrestling with the notion that um, species change. And Lyell has all these arguments about why organisms on islands are perfectly fit for those islands. And that the way islands form, it's completely different the way Darwin thought they formed. And um, Darwin wrote some of the, the best arguments about how and, and actually understood the geology of, you know, atolls and Pacific, you know, these islands that have these rings of coral reefs around them and they have these very weird, you know, volcanic island and then there's a bit of water and then they're ringed with land, it looks like, and gives this beautiful atoll structure. He, he figured that out. He also contradicted what Lyell thought was going on. But he also recognized that islands became sort of these engines of speciation, right? These, these sources of new species and drove this idea of the what goes back to what we said in the beginning, the mystery of mysteries, the source of new life. Yeah. Josh is looking at me. Josh, are you going to say something? The mystery of mysteries isn't what, what does tortoise bladder water taste like? <laughs> <laughs> and iguana meat. So, in closing, the Galapagos is both, yes, the linchpin for Darwin thinking about evolution, right? But it's not the Finch story, as we 
led to believe. But but it is a, a finch huge pin? important <laughs> finch pin. It is a huge and important and complex piece of the puzzle, mm-hmm. right? Like he didn't appreciate how important these observations were at the time, right? Exactly. And and that is the cool thing about this chapter to me is is the the hindsight of it. Like, uh, aren't uh, aren't you glad, Chuck, that you took those bird samples? And aren't aren't you glad that you tried to ride that tortoise? <laughs> Right, uh, and yeah, Hooker. I had a friend named Gould. Yeah, yeah, and Hooker, yeah. So, yeah, you're right. And and that he was open-minded to see that what he thought were, you know, different kinds of birds turned out to be all the same kind of bird, finch, right? He thought they were blackbirds or wrens or whatever. And Gould said, no, you're, you're wrong. So it, it did open up his mind. And when he wrote The Voyage, as we said, 1845, Sarah, you and I were talking about this. He wrote mm-hmm. this abstract of evolution and 1842 and 1844 mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. so this kind of right in like in yeah. right after that yeah so for those of you who may not be familiar darwin secretly wrote a essay and then he wrote another one mm-hmm. uh where he outlines his idea of transmutation of species evolution of species and he doesn't publish it he sets it aside and and so it's interesting to me that he obviously already thought that evolution occurred and so he writes this new edition of Voyage, and he kind of puts it out there, right? He secretly puts it out there that species might have evolved, mm-hmm. and and but people love the 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 expedition of it. The the ex, the, the the voyage is, is is so well written that I think that subtext doesn't actually get picked yeah. up. People don't recognize it. Great. You guys have anything else to say? No. Nope, I think we've said it all. We've said it all. All the things. All right, all the things. We've said the best things and all <laughs> the, the best things. <laughs> but before we leave, Sarah, weren't you on another podcast recently? Yeah, I was. Um, the guys from Common Descent, go check it out, um, invited me. They've been having some special guests, and they had a listener-requested episode on Darwin. Oh, shoot. It's like Darwin's birthday coming up. It is. So, oh, man. yeah, the episode is actually coming out just in time. Chuck's birthday is on February 12th. The episode will drop on February 11th. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to Discovering Darwin. Our next episode is going to be Australia. <gasps> yes. And then Voyage Home. I think it's the last episode of the season. Yeah. So we appreciate you staying with us, and uh, we look forward to listening to our next episode. Thank you very much. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.